All right, good morning. We're ready to get started. Appreciate all of you uh, being here at the appointed hour. The appointed hour changed from last week. So uh, glad you all were able to make it and on time. This is amazing. This is really good. Let's uh, pray and we'll uh, get into the word this morning. Father, we come before you as your children, just hungry to hear from you, to, to devour your word, to be fed by it. We, uh, we know that it is a source of our growth, it is a source of our relationship with you through Jesus Christ, and we just ask that you would illumine our, our hearts and minds today, that we would understand your word, what you have for us, what you have to teach us about yourself, what you have to teach us about ourselves, and we just thank you that Jesus Christ bridged the gap between those two, that we could have salvation through him, and that we could know you as a result, and we just ask these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 7 and 8 today, two chapters to move through. Um, we had some homework at the, um, at the end of the notes last week that focused on the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord was a phrase that occurred a, a number of times in chapters 5 and 6, um, and used in the context of things like the hand of the Lord was heavy against the Philistines, things like that. And so I, I wanted to just explore um, that concept of the hand of the Lord a little bit more through the homework. Um, and so we'll take just a minute or two if anyone has any comments about that. Um, there was some fill in the blanks um, there, a uh, uh, couple of verses from Ezra, a verse from Proverbs, and a, and a verse from Acts. So anybody have anything they want to mention there? Otherwise, you'll have to listen to me talk. A couple of verses in Ezra, and Ezra is talking about his mission to go back to Israel um, after the captivity, and he understood that the hand of the Lord was on him. So we see this used in a positive way as opposed to what we'd seen in 1 Samuel, where it was often used in kind of a negative way. The hand of the Lord was heavy against them. So it was like against people, but here it is with people, with Ezra. So we see that the hand of the Lord can produce blessing as well as produce um, um, conflict. Uh, Proverbs 21.1, a verse that many of you may know, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So what is he saying by this verse? To shorten it, the heart of the, the, heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. What is he saying? Jeff? That's right. God's in control. God is the one that directs this the heart of the king, as if it were a stream. And God just takes and moves the stream here, moves it over here, so that it goes where God wants it to. So God is sovereignly in control of the king's heart. Things don't happen that God does not permit. And then the verse in Acts, Acts eleven twenty one, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So here we see the, the hand of the Lord fuels evangelism. So I thought this was really interesting that this verse with this, what, what we might view as an Old Testament concept of the hand of the Lord, because that's where we've been studying it, is used in the New Testament to show 
that God's blessing, God's control, God is directing people in evangelism. He's directing people to himself. We know from other passages that, that God is the one that draws people to salvation. He's the one that knows them. All right, let's move into today's lesson then with chapter 7 of um, 1 Samuel. And what we'll see in, in chapter 7 in particular is, um, is a cycle that sounds very familiar to the, um, to the book of Judges. And these, um, this, this cycle has um, Israel sinning, Israel crying out for help, repenting, God answering and restoring, and then relationship with God after that. And then this cycle just repeats itself over and over in the, in the book of Judges. And, and really this first part of Samuel is an extension of what we saw in the book of Judges following historically right on its heels. But let's take a look at um, chapter 7. We, we dealt with the first couple of verses last week, and we saw at the end of verse 2 that the ark was in Kiriath-Jerim for 20 years. For 20 years, this ark of the covenant, this um, elaborate piece of furniture that was normally in the holy place, the holy of holies in the tabernacle, was in the house of Abinadab. All right, so we need someone to read verses 3 to 6 for us, please. 3 to 6. Yeah, Fred, go ahead. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among, from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel, then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel in Mizpah. Okay, thank you. So here we see the setting, uh, picking up on this 20 years that the ark was in um, Abinadab's house, house at that point. Now notice that the ark is not moving at this point. The ark doesn't move until much later. When do we see the ark move again in Scripture? Do anybody recall? It's way into 2 Samuel. Nope, okay. <laughs> Pick me up. Yeah, that's right. So in 2 Samuel 6, I think it is, David um, is then king. He wants the ark to be moved to Jerusalem. And so he sends for it to be brought and they put it on the cart and Uzzah puts his hand up and is struck dead and, and we have that whole incident. That is probably 70 to 80 years after this event. That's amazing, isn't it? And the reason how we get there is we know that that David ruled in Hebron for six or seven years. This happened at the end of that when he was establishing his rule in Jerusalem. He ruled in Jerusalem 33 years after that, 40-year rule. So there's like six or seven years. Saul ruled for 40 years before that, and this isn't all the way to Saul's reign. 
So Samuel is still judging Israel, so we think there's probably 20 or 30 years left of, of Samuel's rule at this point. So it's amazing that we see that overall, the ark is in the house of Abinadab maybe 100 years. It's astounding that it's not in its own place. It's not in the tabernacle construct. So we see now Samuel calls to Israel, calls two things. First of all, calls them to repent of idolatry. This call seems to be focused on the end of verse 2, the house of Israel lamenting after the Lord. They, they are grieving probably because of the condition that they are in with the Philistines still um, having some sway over them. And Samuel starts by saying, if you are returning to the Lord. So he's saying that this is a condition. So it's, he's not just accepting it at face value that they're turning to God, but he is saying, if you are doing this, then here's what you need to do. If this is true repentance, here's what you need to do. And there's negative action, putting away foreign gods, specifically the Ashtaroth, which is a goddess, goddess of fertility. And the um, positive action is direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And then there's a promised action on God's part, a promised result that God will deliver you. God will deliver you if you do these actions. Now, notice here at the end of verse 3 what God will deliver them from, from the hand of the Philistines. So we see this hand metaphor that is continued into this chapter, but instead of it being the hand of the Lord, it's the hand of the Philistines. So what this is showing is that they are under the control, the domination of this other nation, the Philistines. So now... God is promising through Samuel, his servant, to deliver them. He's promising his blessing in return for their repentance and obedience. And so how does Israel respond then? Israel responds um, by accepting this. The people in verse 4 take the negative action. They turn away, they put away Baals and Ashtaroth. And the Baal was a god of um, rain and, and thunder. And um, they, they put away these foreign, these foreign gods, these false gods, and they serve Jehovah only. So they do exactly as Samuel has commanded to them. And then he calls to them in verse 5 to assemble, to gather at a specific location, Mizpah, about two miles from where Samuel lived in Ramah. And they gather and they pour out water before the Lord. So this is like imagery of them pouring out their soul before the Lord. They're showing um, repentance through this. It says they fasted on that day. So they're serious about this. They want their attention to be focused on seeking the Lord. And then they actually confess. They repent. They say, we have sinned against the Lord. They make this very clear that they are repenting. So they respond well. So as they are now assembled here, verse 7, we'll pick it up there, and we'll see that the Philistines will attack. So let's um, read 7 to 11. Verses 7 to 11? Someone? Jeff, thanks. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. 
And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew, drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into a confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. All right, thank you, Jeff. So here we see Israel's faith is going to be tested. They have turned to God as Samuel has instructed, but right as they're doing this, the Philistines are attacking. It says, while Samuel is praying, the Philistines are coming. And I think the Philistines are seeing Israel gathered together here as an act of rebellion, as an act of defiance, as perhaps a threat that Israel would turn and attack them. And so what is Israel's response in, in verse 7 to hearing that, that the Philistines are coming? The very end of verse 7, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now, this is like a common reaction, right? You see conflict coming. Fear is a natural human result. You see danger approaching. Fear is a mechanism that God has given us. You know, bear jumps out of the woods. What do you do? You're afraid. So, you know, it's fight or flight. So you run. And here they are afraid. They're afraid because of the situation that they are in. Samuel had promised in verse 3 that if they repented and wholly followed God, that God would deliver them. So why are they fearing? Okay, that's really easy for me to sit here and say, right? They are seeing the Philistines mounting an attack, and they are naturally afraid. This reminded me of, in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus um, is in the, one of the disciples' boats on the Sea of Galilee. The storm comes up, they wake him up, and he says to them, Why are you afraid, O ye of little faith? Why are you afraid? Well, it's obvious to us why they were afraid. They thought they were about to die. <laughs> they, were, they were in a difficult situation that was outside of their control. That's why they were afraid. But what does Jesus do with fear and faith there in that little statement? Why are you afraid, O ye of little faith? He ties them right together, right? So if, if you are afraid, then there is a problem with your faith. It's a natural human reaction for us to be afraid. It is a trained God reaction for us to have faith. And so the disciples needed to look to Jesus and faith. They had enough faith to wake Jesus up and say, can you please help us? They didn't have enough faith to actually imagine that he would take care of the problem in the way that he did. He was so much bigger than what they thought. He just said to the sea, peace be still. And they marveled at his power at that point. Back to this passage, we see the, the Israelites seeing this army coming to attack them and they're naturally afraid and they turn to Samuel and they seek more of God's help. 
So this is the encouraging part of this, that when fear approached, they turned to God in faith. What a wonderful example for us. And what a contrast to chapter 4, where in chapter 4, they had had a battle with the Philistines. They lost. There was like 3,000 men killed, I think it was. And what did they do that time? They said, well, we just need a better strategy. You don't see them turning to God. And what's their strategy? Well, they trot out their lucky charm, the Ark of the Covenant, and they say, this is what's going to take care of us. And they're saying, we have God in a box. We can take care of the problem that way. And that's not at all what could take care of the problem. God certainly could take care of the problem, but not being manipulated like that. So Israel here in chapter 7 senses the continuing need for God's help, and they have enough faith to ask Samuel to pray and to keep praying. Not quite enough faith to be confident and eradicate fear. So Samuel does intercede for them. He offers a burnt offering. He cries out to God, and God defends them. Just in time, God acts. As Samuel was offering, the Philistines were attacking. What was God's mode of operation here? He thunders. He sends thunder, a mighty sound, and that sound creates confusion and permits Israel to defeat the Philistines. The thunder pops up in Scripture from time to time, and I just did a quick survey, and here's, here's some of the usages of thunder in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 9, in the plagues in Egypt, thunder accompanied the plague of hail. It also accompanied the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19 and 20. In Job, thunder is used to describe God's voice. God's voice was like thunder. And we see multiple usages of thunder in the book of Revelation, but not all for one purpose. We won't take the time to examine those. But the one reference to thunder that I do want to look at is right here in in 1 Samuel, and we've already looked at it, but not focused on it. Chapter 2. The beginning of chapter 2, we have Hannah's prayer of praise to God for giving a son. And at the end of her song, in verse 10, she says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Isn't that awesome? That Hannah, years before the event in chapter 7, is saying that when God has an adversary, he's going to be in heaven and he's going to speak like thunder against them. And that's exactly what he does in chapter 7. We have a little foreshadowing there in chapter 2 that's just so easy to miss and gloss over, but God uses that and uses that motive to accomplish victory that day. So God did defend them. All right, let's read verses 12 to 14. Someone pick those up for us. Ty, thanks. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gad. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. All right, thank you. 
So we see this victory is accomplished, and Samuel sets up a stone, calls it Ebenezer. Literally, Ebenezer means stone of help. So they're acknowledging God's help in this victory. And then he says in verse 12, till now the Lord has helped us. So here we have a statement of faith in God's help in the past that is meant to encourage people to believe in God's help in the future. So the stone is a memorial that is to be something that as, as families and generations were passing by, they would look and their children would say, what is going on with this stone? Why is this stone erected here? This is not natural. And the people of Israel the fathers and the mothers, the grandfathers and the grandmothers would point back and say, God helped us. This is called Ebenezer. It is a stone of help. This is where God helped Israel win the battle. And so we see the source of victory is really Jehovah's hand. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel in verse 13. And we see peace is restored. Um, and territories are restored, some of the towns are restored, um, even some of the towns that had been ravaged by the plague. Let's move on to the last couple of verses in chapter 7. Yes, Tammy. So I it means stone of help. Yeah. We have a song. Sometimes it's changed. I didn't write it down. Here I raise mine Ebenezer. Come thou found, thank you. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Sometimes it's translated, here I raise my sign of victory, which because people don't necessarily know what Ebenezer means, but it's kind of a nice um, nod to this event. Um, verse 15 of chapter 7, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, there he also judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So this just real quick paragraph about Samuel's typical um, uh, process of judging Israel. He rode in the circuit to these three towns, and his home was in Ramah, where he built an altar. So we see in chapter 7 that repentance has resulted in restoration of a relationship with God and his blessing that goes with that relationship. But as was the case time and time again during the period of the judges, each generation needed to have a relationship with God for themselves. And so they too frequently repeated this cycle of sin, chastening, repentance, and restoration. So they have to choose, every generation has to choose whether to turn to God or to reject him and turn away. And we're going to see that played out in this next chapter, chapter 8, <clears throat> where Israel now demands a king. Uh, one commentator calls chapter 8 the most significant chapter in the Old Testament historical books. And the reason for that is because it shows the transition from the period of the judges to the time of the kings. So how does all of that happen? How do we get there? And we'll see that in this chapter. So if someone could read verses eight, chapter 8, verses 1 through 5 for us. David, thank you. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. 
He took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us off like the nations. All right, so here we see the um, reasons, the impetus for the demand for a king. So anything in this paragraph sound familiar going back a few chapters? Yeah, it, it has like a haunting sound of what happened with Eli and his sons. What's the differences? Or maybe at least one difference. Any differences that you would recall? What stands out? Or maybe similarities, you know, whatever is just popped out at you from this. Daniel. That's, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a great point. The, here we see the people, the people all acknowledge that these sons are not good judges, and so they rise up against that. Good. There's similarity in, in the sons' sins. It's not as graphically listed here, but they, the, the sins are based on selfishness in each case, you know, generally. One of the differences here is the treatment is not nearly as harsh as what we see with Eli. Eli is condemned as not having rebuked his sons. We don't see that attributed to Samuel. We don't know it's because he didn't do it or the, the writer's just being gracious to Samuel. We don't know that. What we do know is that these sons were judging in Beersheba. You may remember Beersheba is way in the south of Israel. There's a saying of from Dan to Beersheba. Dan was in the north, Beersheba was in the south. So it means all of Israel when you see that Dan to Beersheba reference. So the sons were down here in Beersheba. Samuel is riding this circuit that's kind of like this oval in the middle. It's just slightly north of Jerusalem. So he is not like on the scene necessarily seeing this happen in real time. It, it makes you wonder, however, if the environment that Samuel was raised in, that he did not have a great example of parenting going on in, in Eli. And so he is now repeating mistakes that he has seen in real time. We don't know. Again, speculating. I'll get off my, get off my Eli hobby horse. <laughs> what we do say, see is that every child makes their own decisions. Every child has a sin nature. Every child is capable of any sin that is ever committed. It's a sobering thought. And having godly parents isn't assurance that there will be godly children. Every kid needs to know God for himself. Every one of our children needs to know Jesus Christ personally. What we see is the sin of these two men, Joel and Abijah, um, taking bribes, perverting justice. We see money being more important than people. Money being more important than true justice. This is direct violation of Deuteronomy 16. It says in verses 18 through 20, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. What an indictment. 
That's what these people saw, these elders of Israel. That's what they see, and they call out the systemic failure, the failure of the system of the judges. And they say, the system is not working. Samuel's sons were violating God's law, and it was obvious to everyone. Be hard for Samuel to hear this. Be hard for him to have these people approach him and say, your sons are not doing their job. And it appears that they're unified on this. And so they reject, they reject God as the king. So let's read uh, verses 6 through 9 now. If I have someone read those. Yep, Tammy, go ahead, please. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaken me in serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them to show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Thank you. So Israel rejects God as the king. So Samuel is upset by Israel's demand for a king. He's upset. Why? Not because it's his children. This speaks well of Samuel and his character. And I'm not seeing where I got that from. I think it's implied. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Verse 6. It displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So it, it, it's, it's not that they were rejecting his sons. It's that they were rejecting God that Samuel is focused on. And God says that as well. He shows that their problem is, is not with the judges. Their problem is with God. And their rebel hearts don't want to be ruled by an invisible God. They want someone that they can see, that they can walk into his room and make demands. They have reached a right conclusion, but they've come up with the wrong solution. What do I mean by that? What was the right conclusion? They needed a king. But God was the king. Somebody else? I thought I said it right. They needed change, right? These judges that they had were not working. Change was needed. Injustice was being done. So that's the right conclusion. These, these sons of Samuel were not doing their job. Then as Dave shows that the, or said, is the, the wrong solution is offered. The wrong solution is give us a king. They should have just been saying, give us good judges, or you, God, our king, solve this problem for us. If we think big picture here, over the last several chapters, we've had several instances of Israel trying to solve their own problems. Chapter 4, they tried to solve the national problem of defeat by the Philistines, and they did it by turning to the Ark of the Covenant as a lucky charm. That didn't work out so well. So they had their own solution. Chapter 7, Israel was faced with an attack by the Philistines, and they turned to God for help. 
Good solution. They recognized the problem, and they had a good solution. Turn to God for him to solve the problem. And they don't try to dictate to him how the problem is solved. And here, chapter 8, Israel faces unjust judges, but instead of humbling themselves and seeking God's solution, in their pride and self-sufficiency, they create their own solution. We have a problem, and we have just the solution. We need a king like all of the other nations around us. So just a moment of application. When we see a problem pop up in our lives, what's our first thing that we do or think? We start thinking, you know, what are my options? How can I solve this problem? What's the best thing for me to do in this situation? Many people are action-oriented, and so they grab the problem and they wrestle it to the ground, and they try to produce the solution in their own. Perhaps, perhaps what we should do is we see a problem, we recognize it, and we take it to God and say, God, here's a problem. I need your wisdom to solve this. I need your solution, and I'm relying on you and not on myself. God had predicted that this time would come, that Israel would say, give us a king, it's way back in Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. And he even predicted in that passage what Israel would say. He said, you will say, give us a king like the nations around us. They wanted to be like everyone else. What's the problem with that? God wanted them to be like no one else. He wanted them to be unique. He wanted them to be set apart for himself. He wanted Israel to be this nation that was under God that all the nations would look and say, how do they do it? They don't have a king on earth and yet they're ruled perfectly. God wanted them to be a holy, separate people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so we see God's perspective to this. He says, I'm going to give them what they want. Samuel, don't worry about this. I'm going to give them what they want. He accedes to their request. But this doesn't mean that what God gave them was best for them. So they, they demanded a king, and God says, I will give it to you, <clears throat> but it's going to be a problem. Now, this isn't a new phenomenon where the people demand something and God says, okay, that's what you want. I'm going to give it to you. And then it turns out that it's not really good for them. Anybody have thoughts about what that, what other situations? This, there were some in the wilderness. Yeah, the manna was one. Yeah. And the quail is another. Yeah. They said, oh, all we have is this manna to eat. It's, you know, terrible. We have it every day. Can't we get something else? We need meat. And God sent quail but he also sent the plague with the quail. He said, you're complaining against me. I'm providing everything you need. I'll give you what you ask for, but it's not what you need. He sent them quail with disease. This is sobering. We could be praying fervently for something that's not the best thing for us. We could be so focused on it that, God, I, I, please do this. I want your blessing in this area. I want you to do this for me. And God might give it to us. And yet it might not be the best thing for us. That's, okay, so this is a little tough to get your head around, isn't it? You kind of think that if, if you pray to God and he answers your prayer, that it's like he's saying, I'm giving you my best. Hmm. 
this should recall to us the Lord's teaching on how to pray. And Jesus said, here's how you pray. Our Father, who's in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So how is his will done in heaven? Perfectly. Perfectly. Thought I heard something else over here. Anything else? And I think it's an important thing for the way that we pray, you know, is hmm. that little tagline on the end, you know, we're praying for something, but, but you know what, it's just acknowledging that we don't know what's best for us. So God, please take care of the... <laughs> That's right. That's a statement of faith in and of itself, isn't it? When we pray that way, we are saying, God, I trust your mighty hand. I trust your sovereignty to do what's best for me. It's hard to pray that way sometimes. We follow his commands, and that's hard to do. But every day, I, I, his words is, um, do not let your hearts be troubled. So, okay. Yeah. Let's do this. I will, I will trust in you. Amen. And, <laughs> you know... It's just what I have to do, what yeah. we have to do. Yeah. Yeah. So. This, this, should, this should affect the way we pray. The way we pray would be bringing things to God. We see problems that we have. There was a problem that Israel had. And when we have a problem, we ought to be bringing it to God and say, God, I want your solution. This may seem to me to be the best solution, but I submit it to your will. And I only want that solution if that's what's best for me if that's what's best for you, if that's going to give you the most glory, that's how we ought to pray. That's going to be hard because we're going to have to set our desires under his will. But that's exactly where God wants us. So God identified that they, Israel was rejecting, was rejecting him. And we have five minutes left, so I'm going to read... A little quickly, all right? Verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make implements of war and, and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said 
Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. All right. So what do we see in these last couple of paragraphs in chapter 8? First of all, Samuel wants to be crystal clear with the people. Here is what you're asking for. And we see this word take occur over and over again. He said, this is what kings do. Kings are takers. Kings are parasites that are going to suck the blood out of you. At the end, did you catch that? It says, and you will be his slaves. You think that this is going to be freeing, but it's actually going to be slavery. The kings take only the best for themselves. So what's driving the king to do this? Providing for national defense, creating higher standard of living, promoting national unity? Nope, nope, nope. Very simple. Greed personal pleasure. Benevolent dictators are the most efficient form of government. They're also the rarest. (laughs) They're not benevolent. Why? Because every man has a sinful heart, even those that are leading. Every man puts himself on the throne and wants comfort and thinks that he deserves comfort. And if he's given the opportunity to extract comfort, man often takes it. God meets Israel's demands The people reject Samuel's warning. Samuel takes it back to the Lord and says, you know, just want to make sure this is really what you want me to do. And the Lord says, no, give it to him. Give it to him. I'm going to use this. I'm going to use this for my glory to show them how bad a king can be before I show them how good a king can be. And so Samuel sends everyone home. At the end of chapter 7, we saw Samuel at his home. Now we see all of Israel going to their home to be prepared for the choice of the king. So we see that God has a plan for a king. He has planned for a coming king. Israel got impatient and they wanted it 40 years too early. They get a king that looks good but isn't good. He's from the wrong tribe with the wrong heart one that is focused on pleasing man and not on pleasing God. So here's the point of chapter 8. God's plan accomplished in God's time is always God's best. This is what we want in our lives. This is the way we should pray. The homework for this week is um, some verses for your exploration about the intended king, what God wanted for Israel and how this is a meta-narrative that is a, a theme that pops up throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and I hope you'll take a look at some of those and enjoy the thought that Jesus is coming again, the great King of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you are King, that you have put your Son on the throne to reign forever and ever, and we look forward to that. We ask that he would come soon. And we just ask now, as we worship you, that we would do it in a way that you are pleased and that you deserve. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen.